Luke 17, let's stand for the reading of God's Word, verse 28, down through verse number 33. We'll be reading these verses uh, responsively. I'll begin in 28, and we'll begin together in verse number 29. All right, here we go. Likewise also it was in the days of Lot. They did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. Together, 29. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day where the Son of Man is revealed. In that day he which shall be upon the housetop and his stuff in the house, let him not come down to take it away. And he that is in the field, let him likewise not return back. Verse 32 says, Remember Lot's wife. Whosoever shall seek to save his life shall lose it, and whosoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. The title of my sermon this morning is the um, is what we find in verse number 32. Verse 32 says this, and this is our title, Remember Lot's Wife. Remember Lot's Wife. We all know what happened to Lot's wife. She walked out of the city of Sodom where her residence was, and she was told not to look back. And she looked back, and God turned her into a a rock of salt, a pillar of salt, because of her disobedience. Well, there's so much more to the story than just her looking back. Why did she look back? Why was that so hard for her? And how does that tie into what Jesus is trying to teach here in Luke chapter number 17? We hope to break that down for you this morning, and then we're going to take a look at our own lives and our own hearts and see maybe where we might be struggling with the same things that Mrs. Lot was struggling with. Let's pray this morning. Lord, help us as we look at the Scriptures, as we consider this uh, heavy passage, but yet, Lord, one that's so relevant to today. And Lord, help us as Christians, help us as those who faithfully attend church. Help us, Lord, to have our affection on things above and not on things of this earth. And Lord, where our gaze, our gander, begins to look away from you, may we be reminded And, Lord, may we be convicted, and, Lord, may we get that corrected. Be with us this morning. Help us, Lord, to understand the passage and be challenged by it. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, here in Luke chapter number 17, the Pharisees come to Jesus, and they ask Him when the kingdom of God would come. Now, just quickly here, this was very important to all Israelites, and so... Uh, the the uh, Pharisees had a dual reason for coming to Jesus in this place. The first reason was they're looking to trip him up and prove he's a false prophet, as they were always that was always their motive. But secondarily, even the Pharisees had a curiosity and wanted to know Jesus's angle as to when Israel would regain its prominence. In the world, up to this point, Israel was under Roman rule and uh, was not uh, the prominent country that they so desired to be. And so they come to Jesus frustrated, along with all of the Jews, and they want Jesus's angle as to when they'll break away from Roman rule and when they'll get their country back and their dominance back. And just as it was under King David, but with the Messiah, when will this happen? So Jesus was not there the first time he came to establish a political kingdom. Jesus was there to set us free, not from the bondage of Rome, but to set us free from the bondage 
of sin. And not only to set Jews free from sin, but to set all of humanity free from sin. In fact, this is why the Pharisees would reject Jesus and push Him away, because they were looking for a a, a prince to come in on a stallion and to ride in and to, to lead a revolt against the Romans and set them free. And Jesus was not there for that. Jesus was there to die on a cross and to make His throne out of a, a two pieces of timber ruggedly nailed together. He was there to die in order to give us life and to give us liberty. Not political liberty, but spiritual liberty. And this is why the Pharisees would reject and push Jesus away. And This is why there would be that tension because they just refused to see why He was there. Look down with me at Luke 17. Look at verse number 20. Keep your Bibles open if you would this morning and we're going to use our Bibles quite a bit. And look at verse 20. The Bible says, And when he was demanded of the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation, neither shall they say, Lo here, or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. So, uh, if you read through the Gospels, you might feel a little bad for the Pharisees at times, because Jesus is pretty hard on them. And they'd ask him questions, and he, and he would just sort of give them this vague answer, this non-specific answer. He would speak to them in parables and in riddles, and he would leave them scratching their heads and confused. And some would say, well, why didn't Jesus just come right out and, and make it clear to them, make it plain to them? Because Jesus could see past their question. He could see down into their heart. He could see their motive, and he knew that even if he spoke to them plain, it would make no difference. In fact, the prophet prophesied and said that having ears to hear, they will not hear. And having eyes to see, they will not see. And Jesus was speaking to them, but they were inside. They were spiritually deaf. Now, I, I won't chase this rabbit far, but real quick right here. Many people come to church and they sit in the pew and they come and they go and they come and they go week in and week out. And they hear the preaching of the Word, but it makes no difference to them. It does not matter how clear the, the preacher is or isn't or how vague the preacher is or isn't. Many people leave unchanged and they're like the Pharisees. In fact, someone challenged me once. They said if Jesus was walking the earth today, who do you think the Pharisees would be? Maybe, maybe some of us would be in that crowd, right? And so the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, well, well when's the kingdom coming? And He says to them, basically He just gives them a vague Answer, and he says to them um, uh, that uh, the kingdom of God lies within you. What's he saying? The change needs to happen in you before the kingdom of God will come. Now, uh, there was no one better at making the Pharisees' head spin than Jesus. Jesus then, like he often did, he took his disciples, the one he was training, he took them off to the side, and he gave them a much more clear picture of the way the world would look and the way the events would be when the second coming of the Son of Man or the second coming of Jesus would be, when Jesus would come back and set up His political kingdom here on earth. Look down at verse number 26. Luke 17, look at verse 26. Jesus tells His disciples, He says, And as it was in the days of Noah, or Noah, so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man, or when the Son of Man returns. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given 
in marriage, speaking of Noah's time, until the day that Noah entered into the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. He says, you want to know what it's going to look like when Jesus comes back, when I come back to set up a political kingdom? He says, look back to how it was right before the flood happened. Look how secular the world was. Look how anti-God the world was. That's how it's going to be when the Son of Man returns. And so he points to Noah, but then he points to Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. Look at 28. Luke 17, 28. The Bible says, Likewise also, as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. But the same day that Lot went out, to, went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day he which shall be upon the housetop and and has stuff in the house, let him not come down to take it away. And he that is in the field, let him likewise not return back. What was Jesus telling his disciples here? He was saying, he was paralleling his second coming with a couple of biblical accounts to which these disciples were already familiar. The first one we already looked at was the flood. You know, uh, the day the flood came, do you know that people were busy just living their lives? There was probably some weddings that happened the day the flood came and no doubt there was someone who signed on the dotted line for a new home and uh, someone had just upgraded their living room furniture or had just completed a new piece maybe in the wood shop for their home that was nice. Uh, some woman was out shopping and buying her groceries at the market. Uh, they were just going about living their life as though nothing uh, was any different and then all of a sudden it began to rain. And the next thing you know, that house that had just been bought is underwater literally, physically underwater. Everything was gone and they were destroyed. It happened all of a sudden. You know, uh, in the day that uh, fire and brimstone rained out of the sky and God sent His judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, that day they were there, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, uh, they were uh, drinking, they were eating, they were partying, they were uh, living life and making merry and having a good time and all of a sudden, Fire and brimstone just started to fall out of the sky. And the next thing they knew, they were facing the condemnation of God for their sin. What was Jesus saying about His return? He was paralleling this to the flood and to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Jesus was saying about His return, He was saying two things. He was saying, number one, it's going to be sudden. It's going to be sudden. And number two, it's going to be revealing. It's going to be revealing. You know, only the people that were in the ark were saved. Uh, people could proclaim their own self-righteousness. People could talk about how wonderful of a person they were and how many good works they had done. But when the flood came, only those in the boat were saved. When the fire and brimstone fell out of the sky, only those that were removed from Sodom and Gomorrah were spared. Those living within the city, they were destroyed. And one day when Jesus comes back, it's going to happen sudden. It's, it's going to catch a whole lot of people off guard. But it's also going to be very revealing. You see, you, can, you and I can sit down and we can come up with a list of our own righteousnesses. All of the goods that we claim that we do and the moral values that we claim that we live by. But the real reality is that when you put yourself and I put myself up against a holy God, none of us are so holy. None of us are so holy. 
You know, when I get to heaven one day and I stand there and and if they were to ask me why I should get into heaven, if my answer is because I, because I am a good person, because I believe, because I fill in the blank. My friend, that's the wrong answer. It's because of what he did, not because of what I did or what you did. You ever stop and think about the thief on the cross? He gets up to heaven. Well, what are you doing here? Well, I don't know. Well, well, are you, what righteousness do you have to claim? Well, I don't have any. Well, why do you think you should come in? Because the man on the middle cross said I could. That's all it's going to count one day is did you come to Jesus and believe on Him? And if you do, then His righteousness is laid to your account. Jesus then makes a very abrupt statement. Look back at verse 32. Verse 32. Remember Lot's wife. Jesus drops a very loaded statement right in the middle of His sermon. And then just moves right along with what he was teaching. Now, if Christ has admonished us to remember Lot's wife, then maybe we should take a close look at who Mrs. Lot was, and we can learn from her life. So let's turn back to Genesis. Genesis, I believe, chapter 13. Genesis, thir- or, Yes, Genesis 13. Let's turn back to Genesis, and let's notice five observations about her life as we see the mistakes that she made. And then let's do our best not to repeat her mistakes, okay? Uh, If you received a bulletin on your way in this morning, we have several guests, and so uh, uh, just indulge me a moment while I catch them up with what we do here. On the back of your bulletin, you'll find a fill-in-the-blank outline, and the, um, uh, the the word that goes in the blank will be up here on the screen behind me. And I'll, um, I encourage you to take notes as we go, and so you can follow right along with the message. Notice point number one, observation number one this morning about Lot's wife, Mrs. Lot. Notice her privilege. Her privilege. Uh, Lot's wife was a privileged woman. Most people were not exposed to the amount of truth that Mrs. Lot was given. One commentator said this, he said, when Abraham first received the promises out of Genesis 12, Lot's wife was probably there. When when he built his tent between Ai and Bethel, she was probably there. When the angels came to Sodom and warned her husband to flee, she saw them. When they took them by the hand and led them out of the city, she was one of those whom they helped to escape. Once more I say... These were no small privileges. You understand that in that time, in that era, uh, God did not speak audibly to very many people. In fact, if God spoke audibly to you, you were in just a, a small company of folks that God would have audibly spoken to. Even to have God speak to someone who was close to you, an uncle or an uncle-in-law or a husband or a friend, uh, to have them come to you and say, God spoke audibly to me and this is what He said. Uh, Mrs. Lot was in fine company. She was in an elite group of someone who is privileged to have the truth right there in front of her. But you know, 
You know, you may be here this morning and be like Mrs. Lot. You may think that because of your privilege, you are guaranteed a home in heaven. Born in America, born to religious parents, raised in church. You might even be a church member. You may even be here and be involved in church ministry. Can I tell you that being born into privilege does not guarantee you a home in heaven? Having been exposed to the truth does not get you into heaven. I, my wife and I at this wedding this week, we spent time with another pastor and his wife, and we were sharing our salvation testimonies with each other. And um, the pastor's wife looked at us and she said, well, when I was 14 years old, I had grown up in church my whole life, and I said to my parents, I, I think I got saved when I was six. And they said, oh, really? When, when did that happen? She said, well, I think I prayed in a Sunday school class. And they said, well, we don't remember that happening. And here this young lady had been born in America. She had been preached uh, the gospel. She had heard the truth her whole life, but came to the realization of 14 years old, just because she had privilege, that didn't mean she was saved. And boy, as a 14-year-old young lady, she bowed her head and she put her faith and trust in Jesus. We looked at uh, uh, unreached people groups on Sunday night last week. We saw that an unreached people group is characterized as a, a group of people where less than 2% of them profess evangelical Christianity. So 98% plus of that people group would, would, would tell you that they know nothing about Jesus Christ or have not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Do you know that 3.2 billion people live in unreached people groups? 3.2 billion people know little to nothing about Jesus Christ. That's about half a little less than half of the world's population. The fact that you live in America, you are privileged. The fact that you are sitting here with the Bible open in front of you this morning, whether one's in your lap or mine in front of me, the fact that the Bible is being preached to you this morning, you are privileged. But please hear me loud and clear. Being privileged has gotten nobody to heaven. There was a man, a Jewish man, who was born 2,000 years ago. He was born in Israel. He began his earthly ministry around the age of 30. He had a three-year public ministry. He healed the sick. His name begins with the letter J. His name ends with the letter S. His name is five letters long. His name is Judas. Judas. Is that settling in this morning? Judas is in hell this morning. Boy, he was privileged. He walked with the Savior. Mrs. Lot walked with Abraham. Jesus walked, or Judas walked with Jesus. I don't know where Mrs. Lot is today, but I can tell you assuredly Judas is in hell. Being exposed to the truth and making a decision with the truth are two totally different things. Jacob, or Joab, was David's captain. Gehazi was Elisha's servant. Demas was Paul's companion. Judas Iscariot was Christ's disciple. And Lot had a worldly, unbelieving wife. Again, again, I repeat myself, but again, when we get to heaven, we're going to be surprised at who is there. And we're going to be surprised at who is not there. Her privilege, number one. Number two, notice her passion. Her passion. Look at Genesis 13 with me this morning. And look at verses, verse number 10. Genesis 13, and look at verse number 10. The Bible says, And Lot lifted up his eyes 
and behold, all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere, before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zoar. Then Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan. And Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves the one from the other. Abram dwelled in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent toward Sodom. If you've not yet underlined that phrase in the Bible, and you do underline in your Bible, mark that phrase, and pitched his tent towards Sodom. But the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. Well, the day came where Uncle Lot and nephew, or rather nephew Lot and Uncle Abraham had to split up. Why? Why did they have to split up? Well, because their herdsmen weren't getting along. Uh, you see, Lot was a wealthy man, and he had lots of animals that represented his wealth. And Abraham, as a rancher as well as Lot was, he was a wealthy man, even wealthier than Lot was. And as they journeyed together, their animals kept having babies, and uh, their, their flocks, their herds kept getting bigger. And then there began to be this dispute between Lot's employees and Abraham's employees. And there was fighting over whose animals were who. And this contention and this drama was building and growing, and even causing them to fight within their family. And so one day, Abraham put his arm around Lot and said, listen, we're brothers, right? Let's not fight. Uh, If it's better for us to separate so that we get along, then maybe we need to do that. How many of you here have ever had, uh, maybe you uh, you were living in the home of someone else and you were adult and you were able to live out on your own and you said, you know what, it might just be best that we separate, right? We not be under the same roof, and then I'd come over and visit you, or you can come over and visit me, and we'll get along a lot better. I love, 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 love. Let me say that again. Love my mother-in-law. Love her to death. She's a sweet woman. She really is. I mean that with my whole heart. All the mom-in-law jokes do not apply to my mom-in-law. Amen? I love her, love her, love her. My mom-in-law will come and stay in the States for four to six months at a time, and by the time we get to the end of the six months, she's ready to go back to her home, and I'm ready for her to go back to her home. Amen? Lot and Abraham were grown men. They had their own families. It was time to split up. And so Abraham puts his arm around Lot and says, Lot, buddy, I love you. We're going to get along. Sometimes we need some space between us to make that happen. He says, look, you can go this way or you can go this way. You pick and I'll, I'll defer whatever you want. And so Lot looks over at Canaan. Canaan was a nice land. In Sunday school as a boy, I was always, it was always painted that you know Canaan had nothing and it was just this barren wilderness. That wasn't the case. It was nice, but the well-watered plains of Sodom were nicer. And so Lot looks and he's got all these animals and he sees the, the plush meadows and fields and he says, you know what, I'm going to take the well-watered plains of Jordan. And Abraham says, okay. Well, tomorrow you go that way and I'll go this way. And so they split. All right, here's a question for you, okay? How many of you would say with me, Pastor, there was nothing nothing wrong with Lot picking the well-watered plains of Sodom? That by itself, in and of itself, there was nothing wrong with that. How many think that was wrong? Okay, I would say I don't necessarily see anything wrong with choosing the well-watered plains of Sodom. He had to go one way, and listen, God had it in His plan for Abraham to go to Canaan land. That would end up being where the Israelites were. But here they are in the well-watered plains of Sodom. But here's where Lot made his mistake. He had the choice of which way he set his tent up each morning. 
And he could set it up where when they walk out of the tent, they looked toward where Abraham was. Or they could set up their tent where when they came out, there was the big, beautiful city of Sodom and its sister city, Gomorrah. And he set his tent up to come out and see Sodom and Gomorrah. And so each day they came out. And what did their eyes behold? Sodom and Gomorrah. And I wonder if Mrs. Lot didn't look over at her husband one day and say, you know, me and the girls could use a vacation. And it'd be nice to just go into the city and experience the city life for a week. Why don't we go for a visit? Well, that's what they did. They went for a visit. And again, there's nothing wrong with the vacation. But that visit, that vacation, turned into a permanent residence. They moved into the wicked city of Sodom. No doubt, Mrs. Lot enjoyed the perks that the city life offered. Her kids, if you will allow me to use American terminology, her kids went from being homeschooled to having a classroom and classmates and a social life. She went from being alone and living in solitude to being able to fraternize with other women that were her age. The Bible tells us that Lot was righteous, but it never says that about his wife. You know, I'm left to wonder, and again, this is speculation, but I'm left to wonder if Lot would have made a different choice if his wife and daughters would have had different passions. Mrs. Lot and his four daughters, they had different passions. How many of you men here, and you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you men here have ever felt the tug of war over a choice in your home? And you know what's right, but you can feel your family wanting to pull you in another way. And you cave and give in and go the other way. Sometimes it's the wife that wants to do right. It has a clear head on it. The husband's carnal and trying to pull in the wrong direction. Mrs. Lott and the four girls... Boy, they wanted that city life. They wanted what Sodom had to offer, even though Sodom was a wicked, wicked city. And one day they went for a visit. They went from sojourning to residing to becoming their permanent residence. I want to ask you a question this morning, Christian. What are you passionate about? What are you passionate about? You say, well, Pastor Lejeune, I'm not sure I answered that question. I can help you. All right? Open up your wallet and see where you spend your money. Open up your schedule and open up your calendar and see where you spend your time. You show me what you spend your money on and where you spend your time, I'll show you what you're passionate about. You say, oh, there goes that preacher grabbing at my wallet again. Oh, no, 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 no. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I'm not saying you've got to give your money, every dime of your money to the church. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm telling you, show me where you spend your money. And show me where you spend your time. And show me where you spend your energy. And show me where you spend your effort. And I'll show you what you're passionate about. Boy, they went from walking with the patriarch Abraham to living in the midst of a godless city of Sodom. And boy, that would have negative uh, repercussions on their family, as we'll see here shortly. Number three, we, number one, we saw, speaking of Mrs. Lot, her privilege. Number two, her passion. Number three, notice her possessions. Her possessions. Let's look at letter A. We see she possessed a title. She possessed a title. Look down with me at Genesis 19. Genesis chapter 19 
and verse number 1. Please turn in your Bibles there with me. Genesis chapter 19 and verse number 1. The Bible says, And there came two angels to Sodom at even, and Lot sat in the gate of Sodom. And Lot, seeing them, rose up to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. Again, verse number 19, the beginning of the verse says, And there came two angels of Sodom at even, and Lot sat in the gate of Sodom. Where was Lot sitting when the angels arrived? Where was he? He's in the gate. He was in the gate. Now, if you are a student of the Bible, you study the Bible much, you know that the judges sit in the gate. That is a place where the judges sit. Lot had gone from a vacationer to being a permanent resident to being someone who held position within the town. Now, watch this about Mrs. Lot. When Mrs. Lot walked around Sodom, when she walked around town, she was viewed as, oh, that's Lot's wife. That's Lot's wife. You see the title there? She no doubt enjoyed the attention that she got by others as she walked in and out of the stores. She enjoyed the lavished banquets that Lot would take her to for the judicial part of the city. The VIP treatment as her husband was somewhat of a town politician. People in life fought, people in life today fight very hard to get a title. They will sell their soul to the devil if it means they can get hold of just a little bit of fame. I'm here to tell you this morning that people with fame are often miserable, miserable, miserable people. I uh, turn on the news and I see, uh, and I, my heart goes out for her. I'm not at all here to judge her, but just more to uh, uh, pull out a relevant uh, example. But how many have been uh, following, at least casually, what's going on with Britney Spears? That poor soul. That poor soul. She found fame, didn't she? Boy, her life is being wrecked. How about Miley Cyrus and all that's going on with her life? How many, how many little teeny bop uh, uh, pop, pop stars... Go from fame at such a young age, it just ruins their life. They end up in drugs and rehab facilities and wrecked and ruined relationships. Boy, uh, people that get fame, fame ruins people. Here, Mrs. Lott, she had a title. So many people work to have a title. I'll just say this here. I see this in the preacher's world that I live in. I see preachers who fight so hard to have a big name. They self-promote and they run to this conference and that conference and this preacher's fellowship and that preacher's fellowship. What are they looking to do? They're looking to self-promote, to build a name. They want to be the keynote speaker at some big conference somewhere. They want to be a somebody in the preacher's world. I'll just tell you this morning that um, I have fought that temptation here and there, but I have come to the conclusion that if nobody outside of Stratford area knows my name, but God knows who I am, and God knows that I'm faithful and ministering to the needs of these people here, I am totally, totally okay with that. God's not called me or you to be a big shot. God has called us to be obedient to Him and to trust and obey. That's what God's called us to be. And we will compromise and compromise and compromise and compromise so that we'll have more fame and more followers and be some sort of pop culture influencer. God's not called us to do that. God's called us to take the gospel of Jesus Christ and to live it and to preach it. And God may indeed decide to give fame to you if He feels that you're ready for that and you're humble enough to handle it. But you leave that up to Him and you do your best to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ by both the way you live 
and by the way you speak. Mrs. Lot moved into, uh, into Sodom. Her husband became a man of importance. He was a judge. He was a politician. She no doubt enjoyed all the perks of the fame of living as part of the elite class. She possessed a title. Let her be. She possessed things. She possessed things. Early in Genesis chapter 19, we see that they had bought a home. In the middle of the chapter, we see that two of her daughters were married. Lot and his wife had put down roots. And any time you do that, you are going to own material goods. Now, let me be really clear on this. It is not a sin to own material goods. But it is a sin to love those material goods more than you love God and your neighbor. It is a sin to value those things more than you value God and His calling on your life. Mrs. Lot was consumed, no doubt, with the nice things that she owned. And can I say for a moment, I think all of us can understand how she got there. Boy, they were settled in Ur of the Chaldees and just living a regular life. And God comes to her her husband's uncle, Uncle Abraham, and says, I want you to pick up all of your things and sell your home and live out of a tent and travel and go where I tell you to go and be a nomad and a wanderer. Abraham may have been the richest nomad ever to live, just roaming from here to there and everywhere. And Lot, um, Mrs., Mrs. Lot looks at her husband and her husband says, I want to go with him. And she says, but then we're going to have to sell our home and we're going to have to uproot the kids out of school and uh, take them out of the social fabric we enjoy here in the city of Ur. And Lot says, I don't care. I want to go. And Mrs. Lot, being a good wife, takes her things and sells them all and gives up the comfort that comes along with all of what she had and packs up her belongings and they are just following around um, uh, Uncle Abraham. And I'm sure at some point Mrs. Lot must have looked at, him, uh, at her husband and said, what are we even doing out here? Where are we going? going. Uh, what is all this about? I miss my hometown. I miss uh, all that I had. And uh, Lot just says, let's just stay the course. My uncle is talking with God. and I want to get something from him. And then the day comes where they split and Mrs. Lot says, I want my city life back. I think all of us can understand why she felt the way she did. And so in Sodom they landed and they put down roots in a wicked, evil city and she became attached to her title. No doubt, she became attached to her things. This week, we, uh, tra- as I mentioned in the introduction of the service, we traveled up to the uh, state of Maine. First time I'd ever been to Maine, and I've picked on Maine a little bit. It's a beautiful, beautiful state. We were in a little town called Stratton, about 20 miles from the Canadian border, and uh, we had a wonderful time there. You say, where is Stratton? It's in the middle of nowhere. Amen. We had almost no cell reception the whole time we were there. But we had a good time. And uh, i got to tell you, I'm a little bit of a hotel snob. Anybody else here a hotel snob? You, you really picky where you stay? Amen. I'm a little bit of a hotel snob. No, I don't have to stay in like a four-star hotel. But I at least want, you know, the room to be clean. Amen. I don't want any hair when I pull back the sheets. Amen. And uh, I'd rather not see, you know... Um, uh, bugs in the bathtub when I, you know, pull back the curtain, and I want there to be hot water when I turn the sink on. How many are with me? Okay, maybe I'm not a hotel snob. Maybe I just expect what is normal. But anyway, um, I, I, 
Brother Car- the Vares are wonderful people, and uh, they're classy people, and they, you know, they always uh, handle themselves well and dress well, and they, they live a, a nice, uh, a, a nice uh, life, and they're a key family in our church here. And uh, the Vares told me, they said, Pastor, we're going to put you and your family up, and uh, we don't want you to have to worry about your accommodations. We're very appreciative of that. I went up to perform the wedding, and then uh, we got ready for the trip, and Brother Carson sent me the link to where we were staying, and I looked at it, and it said... So, uh, so, uh, spillover motel. And I said, they're going to put me in a motel? You know, the kind where you go in from the outside, not the inside? And, um, and I thought, well, I trust the Vares. Maybe this is a super, super, super nice motel. Amen? And uh, we got up there. We got up there to where we were going, and we arrived and, um, uh, Thursday evening, and we're standing there, and I'm kind of sizing up this motel. And, you know, it looked nice enough, and Angel's looking at pictures online for me because I asked her to. And, you know, it looked nice enough, and I thought, well, you know what? I've camped out in the woods before. This can't be much worse. Amen? And um, Brother Carson comes in the lobby, and he says, Pastor, you're not staying here. Get in your car and follow me. And we followed him about three miles up the road, and lo and behold, that motel owns a home. And they said, you and your family and this other pastor and his family, you all are going to stay in this home. And it was an older, more rustic home, but it was very uh, nice and clean. And i got to tell you, I got a big smile. And I said, Brother Carson, you don't have to do this. And we're not thinking, thank you so much. We walked in this home and... We got our, our it's like five or six bedrooms in this home, big home, and we got our stuff where we wanted. We beat the other pastor there, so we got the premier, amen. Um, I was like Lot. I, I was selfish, amen. And so uh, we got where we wanted. All the rooms were about the same. We got in there and got some air conditioners in the window because it's hot in Maine, amen. And I uh, got all that situated, and um, I began to look around. And, you know, there were some things in that home that were really, really, really nice. I saw uh, above the bed we were sleeping and there was this old antique decor piece. And Angela, oh, I just love that piece. That night I was sitting down at the, at the dining room table and I was working on my sermon for this evening and I uh, had the lights on and the lights were really dim. And, you know, I thought to myself, I thought to myself it sure would be nice if they'd put some brighter light bulbs in here. And I'm looking around the room, and uh, we blew a fuse at one point, and they had a, a padlock that kept us away from the breaker box, and we had to call the number and get the code. And, and I'm thinking, you know, it sure would be nice if this house was wired a little bit different. But you know what? I came to the real, realization of, now this is the point. This is where I'm going with this. I was only going to be there two nights. You know what I was not going to do? I was not going to bring an electrician in to rewire the house. You know what I was not going to do? I was not going to go buy light bulbs and change out the dining room fixture with brighter bulbs. You know what I was not going to do? I was not going to become obsessed with the decor piece that we were only going to enjoy for two days. Now watch this, watch this, watch this. Jesus said in Matthew 6, Lay not up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. He said, Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. There's going to be a day when we get to heaven where we've been there a million years, a billion years, and we look back over our shoulders at our time on earth, and it will feel like we stayed here for two nights. But many of us are busy accumulating things that are going to corrupt and rust and fall apart. It would have been foolish for me to remodel that hotel home. 
it's equally foolish for you to be so focused on things on this earth that don't matter. Now listen, I want to be clear. There's a balance here. I'm not saying to neglect your things. If you, you need a place to dwell, you need a place to stay, uh, there's nothing wrong with driving a nice car and wearing nice clothes, but you make sure that you're not like Mrs. Lot with your affections set on things of the earth. You make sure, like Colossians 3 tells us, that our affections are locked on the things that are above and that we understand that we're just passing through and this world is not my home and, and I'm on my way to heaven and God is going to give me a mansion that I'll dwell in there and I'm going to dwell in the presence of God for all eternity. My friend, don't get your, don't get your sights set and locked on things of this earth and neglect the things on the other side of this earth. She possessed things. She possessed a title. Number one, her privilege. Number two, her passion. Number three, her possessions. Number four, let's notice her pain. Her pain. Look at Genesis chapter 19 and look at verse number 12. The Bible says here, And the men said unto Lot, Hast thou here any besides son-in-law and thy sons and thy daughters? And whatsoever thou hast in the city, bring them out of this place, for we will destroy this place because of the cry of them is waxen great. Before the face of the Lord. And the Lord hath sent us to destroy it. And Lot went out and spake unto his sons-in-law, which married his daughters, and said, Up, get you out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But he seemed as one that mocked unto his sons-in-law. What a shame. Lot and his wife had two daughters that married godless men from the town. When Lot came in with a bead of sweat on his brow and a quiver on his lip, they just thought he was joking around. They thought he wasn't serious. Now picture this. Lot is sitting in the gate doing his job as a judge. Two men come walking in the city. Lot looks at them and says, These aren't ordinary men. These are angels. And Lot is a righteous man. He knows these guys are different. And he says to these two guys, You're staying at my house tonight. Because this place is crazy. You're staying at my house tonight. Now, how wicked was Sodom? How wicked was Sodom? It was so wicked that Lot had these two angels staying in his house, and the men of the streets decided they wanted to rape these two men. And so they approach Lot's door, and they begin banging on his door, saying, send them out to us so we can defile them. I've heard people say that America is like Sodom and Gomorrah. We ain't that wicked yet. Now, we may be going that direction. We're not quite there yet. And Lot, the knucklehead, he comes, scoots outside the door, and he says, Guys, leave them alone. They're my guests. And the guy's like, Nope, give them to us, or we're going to break your house down. And he says this. Now, I'm a dad of a little girl. This blows me away. He says, I'll give you my two daughters. They're virgins. You can do whatever you want to to them. Just leave these men alone. Lot, what has happened to you? Lot, how broken, how warped is your mind? And these men say, we don't want to have anything to do with your daughters. We want those men. And the angels open the door and they zap these guys and make them blind. Now, you would think, now they've been struck with blindness they've learned their lesson, they're going to go home. But nope. The Bible says they wandered around still trying to find the door. Now Lot's 
adrenaline is flowing. And Mrs. Lot's adrenaline is flowing. And the daughters, no doubt, are upset with Dad. At least I would think they would be. And, and uh, they sit down on the couch together around the, the dining room table. And the two angels look Lot straight in the eye and say, God is going to destroy this city for its wickedness and you need to get out. Do you have any other family other than what's here? And they say, well, yeah, we've got two daughters that are married to men. And they say, well, warn them that they've got to go. And so Lot gets up and he goes to their house and he sits there with sweat running down his face and a quiver in his lip. And he says, listen, God's going to destroy this town. Y'all got to get lost. And they look at him and say, ah, oh, get out of here, Dad. You just have to be quitting. Can you put yourself in Mrs. Lot's place? Just for a moment here, can you feel her pain? Boy, you just finally got your roots back down and hey, you're a person of prominence and you, you have your possessions back and, and your kids have a social life and two of your daughters have gotten married and now you're being told you've got to up and leave again? You see, when we walk by our path and by our logic and not by God's path and His logic, we just set ourselves up for upheaval over And over and over again. Lastly, number five, notice her punishment. Her punishment. Look at Genesis 19. Look at verse number 15. And when the morning arose, then the angels hastened Lot, saying, Arise, take thy wife and thy two daughters which are here, lest thou be consumed in the iniquity of the city. And while he lingered, while Lot lingered, the men laid hold upon his hand, upon the hand of his wife and upon the hand of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful unto him. And they brought him forth and set him without the city. And it came to pass, when they had brought them forth abroad, they, that he said, Escape for thy life, look not behind thee, Neither stay thou in all the plain. Escape to the mountain, lest thou be consumed. The angels of God gave a clear command to Lot and his family. Here was the command. Do not look back at that city. Don't do it. You've been taken out of that city. Don't look back. God's about to pour down His wrath on those two cities. Don't look back. Lot obeyed. The two daughters that were with, with, uh, with uh, Lot and Mrs. Lot, they obeyed, but Mrs. Lot could not help herself. While her body was outside of the city, her heart was still in that city. Her home, her furniture, her expensive handbags, her clothing, her notoriety, her cush lifestyle, but maybe hardest of all, her other two daughters. So she disobeyed. She turned and looked. And what was her punishment? Well, let her A notice she was turned into a pillar of salt. Pillar of salt. Look at Genesis 19, verse 24. The Bible says, Then the Lord reigned upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and that which grew upon the ground. But his wife looked back from behind him and she became a pillar of salt. Pastor, do you believe that she physically 
literally became a pillar of salt? Oh, yes, I do. If God can create man out of the dust, He can turn Mrs. Lot into a pillar of salt. And I believe as a statue, she was frozen in the position at which she was looking. As soon as she turned and looked back at the destruction of Sodom, God froze her in that stage with her eyes locked on the city as a memorial of what it means to look back at a life of sin that God has called you away from. Her privilege could not help her any further. God made a biblical example out of someone who disobeys a direct order. You know what Mrs. Lot was exposed as? She was exposed as a phony. She may have looked the part. She may have played the part. She was a phony and she died in her hypocrisy. That brings the sermon full circle. Here's why. You come to church... And you look like you're a Christian. Come into church and you carry your Bible and you smile real big and you call everybody brother this and sister this. Everybody look up here. Let me have your attention. You can fool me as the pastor. But I'm not the one that decides whether you make it into heaven or not. You can fool the other people in this church, the deacons, life group leaders, people who have been here 20, 30 years. You can fool Pastor Andrew. That's not too hard, amen? <laughs> Love you, buddy. In all seriousness, you can't fool God. You can't. God knows. There are people who lean on privilege. You know, there are two types of millionaires in the world. There are those who earn their money and there are those who inherit their money. People that inherit their money, sometimes they are the most wasteful with it, aren't they? You know, you can't inherit salvation. You don't just get it because your parents were saved. You don't just get it because you grew up in a religious home. There has to be a point in your life where you turn to Jesus as a sinner. You make a conscious choice to choose Christ for you. Your parents can't do it for you. Your pastor can't do it for you. You must do it for yourself. Well, I've gone to church my whole life. That's not going to get anyone into heaven. You know more a Christian staying in a church than you would be a car sleeping in a garage. Doesn't work that way. When did you call on Jesus? And then this, if you've been called on if you've called on Jesus to save you, he's asked you to walk away from that lifestyle. Now, I don't have this in my notes, so we're we're just going to add this real quick. Turn over to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3 in your Bible. Actually, look back at chapter 1 first. We'll get to Philippians 3 in just a moment. Look at verse number 6 of Philippians 1. Now, if you're saved, you can be assured that one day God is going to complete in you the work of sanctification that He's begun. He's going to turn you into the image of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 6. Being confident 
of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. It will happen. It will happen. You can be confident that if you put your faith in Jesus, you will one day be made in the image of Jesus Christ. Now, that process will complete when you die and get to heaven. You will go from wherever you are in the process to being made whole. But listen, I don't want to get to heaven and look like the same sinner I was the day I got saved. I want there to be some growth. I want there to be some change within me. I want to begin the process of being who God wants me to be here on earth with the time I have left. Turn to Philippians 3 and look at verse number 13. And this brings us back to Lot's wife. Look at 13. It says, Brethren... 3.13, I count not myself to have apprehended, or I count not myself to have arrived, but this one thing I do. What's that next word? Everybody read that with me. Ready? Forgetting. What are we forgetting? Forgetting those things which are behind. Reaching forth into those things which are before. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus. Mrs. Lot, you know what her problem was? She did not want to forget what was behind her. She didn't want to forget. She didn't want to press on toward the mark of the prize of the calling in Christ Jesus. Some of you in here today, you got saved as adults. Please listen. You got saved as adults and you got saved out of a lifestyle of sin. God is calling you to leave that sin behind. You may not be able to do it all at once, but you need to fight the battle to walk away and forget about those things which are behind. You know, Paul, when he got saved, he was in the middle of on his way to go murder Christians. And Paul could have looked behind him and saw successes and failures. But he said, I've done this one thing well, I forgot those things that are behind, and I'm pressing forth to what's before. Hey, Mrs. Lot, you're being drug out of the city. Hey, Mrs. Lot, God's destroying the wickedness of the town before you. Hey, Mrs. Lot, forget those things that are behind and press toward the mark of the prize of the calling in Christ Jesus. Mrs. Lot says, but my heart is still back there in that wicked place. I think I'll turn and look. And God said, you're a pillar of salt. Now, I don't think God's going to turn anyone to a pillar of salt. Amen? If I get out in the parking lot this morning and find you in the form of salt, I guess we'll see that's different. But I don't anticipate that happening. But can I tell you that while God may not turn you to a pillar of salt, God very well may allow you to face His hand of punishment until you learn your lesson. And that brings us to letter B. And lastly, notice promiscuous daughters. Promiscuous daughters. Look, look with me at... Um, Genesis 19, look at verse 36 and 37. So the story is that Lot and his two daughters, they find their way to a cave. They're living out of a cave because they're now paranoid over what's going to happen to them. And some very wicked, incestuous things take place. Look at 36 and 37. Then were both the daughters of Lot with child by their father. And the firstborn bare a son and called his name Moab, the same as the father of the Moabites unto this day. Both daughters became impregnated by their dad. By their choice, they, they fooled dad into it. Can I just say, this probably would have never happened if Mrs. Lot was still present in their life. Now watch this. We get our world tangled up in sin. And the next thing you know, other people who we should be looking after are adversely affected because of our own sin. 
What's the advantages of not looking back? Being who God wants you to be, you get to help a whole lot of people by living just like that. Boy, God is calling us as Christians to live righteous in an unrighteous world. How are we doing with that this morning? Are you more impressed with, are you more concerned with impressing the culture, fitting with the culture, or are you more concerned with impressing Christ, living for Christ? Are you relying on your privilege to get you by? Are you watching for his return, or are you caught up decorating your hotel suite? My friend, Christ could come back at any moment. With that said, let's learn from the mistake of those in the past. Remember Lot's wife. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed this morning. Every now and then I think it's healthy for a pastor to give the church a good old gut check. And that's what this sermon's meant to be today. If you've attended here long at all, you know that this is far from a typical Sunday morning sermon. But I believe it's needed. Sometimes that gut check is a gut check on your salvation. Now let me be clear here. If you're saved, you're saved. We don't, we don't go by how we feel. You put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to save you. For the rest of your life, you're on your way to heaven. Jesus said he cannot deny himself, no matter how you behave. He cannot deny himself. But churches are filled with pretenders, of people who look the part and talk the part and act the part, but never truly got saved. And there are all kinds of reasons that keep people from getting that dealt with. Sometimes we're concerned about what other people are going to think about us. And I just want to ask you this, if that's you today. Are you going to let anybody in this room keep you out of heaven? Cause you to go to hell? Who cares what other people think? Boy, what matters is whether or not you're saved. Whether or not you've truly trusted Christ for salvation. Secondarily, if you got that handled, it doesn't matter who, who it is here today. If you got that taken care of, everyone in this room would rejoice with you. 